I'm Brian Fierst. And I'm Rebecca Cahoe, and you're listening to Rural Roots. A Harris Center show that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? In the next two episodes, we're going to take a long, hard look at the growing extent of opioid use and addiction currently taking place in rural Canada. Opioid addiction is often seen as an urban problem, but as we learned doing the research and the interviews for these two episodes, that's unfortunately not true, and there are rural communities right across the country struggling with social, health, and criminal aspects of opioid addiction. Yeah, in this episode, we're going to bring you three voices from our home province of Newfoundland and Labrador. The first one you may actually recognize from one of our earlier episodes. Stephen Miller was the journalism student who shared his story uh, as part of our On the Map feature about the incredibly delicious cheesecake <laughs> found, um, found in Grand Bank on the, on the Buren Peninsula here in Newfoundland. But that day, we actually, uh, after he told us about the cheesecake, uh, we were just chatting and we asked him how often he goes back to Grand Bank. And he said that there were reasons why he actually didn't go back very often. And that was kind of the entrance into him telling us a way more complicated, Mm. difficult story, which was about his own experience and struggle with opioid addiction um, while living in a quite remote rural community here in Newfoundland. And it's, he's quite a storyteller, and before we let you hear that, I just want to tell you about the other two voices in this episode. Those are Susan Boone and uh, Brian Rees from Bell Island. Susan and Brian are a part of a group of Bell Island residents running a community-based harm reduction program in a small community of about 2,500 people, and it's just off the coast of Avalon Peninsula, just a short ferry ride away from St. John's. So we do want to give you a bit of a warning about this episode. There are going to be some very difficult moments. We'll be talking about addiction, overdose, loss of life, and grief. The first story you will hear is Stephen's, and he's, it's the way that he chose to tell it. And we thought that it was better just to let him speak. We won't be piping up uh, very much. It's about 20 minutes long. And uh, it also includes a bit of music. We asked Stephen what he thought would be appropriate to pair with his story. And it was actually, uh, we we spoke to him a couple days after the death of Gord Downey, the lead singer of the Tragically Hip. So he chose a specific song by the hip that means a lot to him. And he also mentioned that the Queens of the Stone Age were a band that he would like us to include. So I spent, uh, you know, probably... uh, you know, half an hour (laughs) the other day in the office listening to Queens of the Stone Age, which uh, I don't know if people know it. It's a pretty heavy-duty band. But we were able to find an acoustic performance. So, yeah, just so you know, the music is all specifically relevant to what Stephen wanted us to share about him and about his story. So this is only one of many stories of addiction, struggle, and grief that are playing out in communities across Canada, but this is the one that that belongs to Stephen and that we really wanted to share with our listeners today. Yes, and uh, as, as much as it is his individual story, and we never meant it to represent all of the stories that are happening across the country, but maybe for those of listeners who, like myself, don't necessarily have a personal experience, either in their families or necessarily in their immediate community, of opioid addiction, I think it really paints a picture of what that looks like. And I think it might sound and and feel a little bit different than some people might imagine as well. Yeah. So let's just, um, let's, Stephen, tell us the story. 
My name is Stephen Miller and I'm a first year journalism program student at the College of the North Atlantic and uh, I am an ex-opiate addict and I'm currently in the final stages of the methadone maintenance program. Uh, as of today I'm in the single digits and I started on nine mils a day and I'm going down one a week. For me, uh, it was it was a very hard situation that kind of opened my eyes finally. Because I, I wish I could say the first time I saw my mother cry or the first time I felt handcuffs close on my wrist that that was enough for me, but it wasn't. Um, it wasn't nearly enough. Uh, for me, it was it was losing my girlfriend. Uh, her name was Nicole, and she died in June of uh, 2015. That day, I believe we had one and a half Axie 80s between us, so we split it so that it was, you know, two thirds of an Axie each, so like 60 milligrams. And to us at that point, that was like having a coffee in the morning, it was nothing. But that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It happened in a matter of seconds. I, I had, I was on the phone with my mother because, you know, <laughs> Typical for me at the time in my life, I had court later on that day. And so she used, while I was on the phone with my mother, who was, you know, more or less, you know, wishing me luck in my most recent uh, potential incarceration. And uh, when I was on the phone, my mother, Nicole, came up and, and I remember her grabbing me and, and in a manner that, like, her claws instantly stuck into me. And I, and I looked at her and she said, you know, something's wrong. But, like, the way she said it, even the way she said it was, you know, and then at first I didn't really think anything of it because I was just like, well, what could possibly be wrong? Um, so I was just, I, I went to kind of be like, oh, just one second, I'm on the phone. And then, like, she really dug her claws in. And then I looked at her, and the fear in her eyes, words don't do it justice. Like, she knew something was very, very wrong. And I, I, I asked her, you know, like, an ambulance, and she, like, when you're when you're committing uh, illegal acts, like you're you're wary of stuff like that. You're not going to say yes immediately to an ambulance unless you're absolutely certain that it needs to be, you know, called. And as I, I called it, and I, her throat was swelling to a point that, and I don't I don't know what caused the swelling. I still don't understand it. But her throat was swelling to the point that she was unable to like get words out. And uh, she was an asthmatic, and she had an asthma inhaler. I don't know if it was hers, I don't know where, if she was prescribed or whatever, she had an inhaler and she, I remember her asking me to find it and the way my basement apartment was, you could go up through the stairs and there was the entrance to the outside and she, I guess she thought fresh air would make it easier to breathe. So she was kind of hanging out the doorway, uh, first she was on her feet, she was standing up um, and then I gave her the puffer and she was repeatedly taking it and I mean to the point where I actually had to be like, no, like you're, like I don't know how that works but I know that you're not supposed to do it 50 times in a row. Um, I don't know if it could speed your heart up or something, but I just knew that that wasn't how it was supposed to work. So uh, at that point, I'd already called the ambulance in a panic and told them where I was. Probably, to be fair, only five or six minutes had passed before I called them again, but I had to because things were getting so much worse, like, so so quickly. And um, I remember, like, she was turning blue. Like, she was turning blue in front of my eyes. And uh, I never felt more helpless in my life because... You know, you kind of you kind of take on, or, or you you aspire to take on the role of protector for the people that you love, and there was nothing I could do for her, and it was happening right in front of me, and it was it was it was awful, and um, so yeah, so when when the ambulance uh, finally showed up, just before they showed up, um, she lost consciousness, and 
her last words, um, or at least the last words that, that you could make out, were, when is Zamulin's going to be here? So yeah, when when they got there, there was this one moment, and it was it was it's so it was so bittersweet in retrospect because they when the ambulance got there and started working on her, they didn't immediately put her on the stretcher and bring her to the hospital. They at first, of course, they they put a tube in her throat, like a rest, like to help her breathe or whatever, and they were breathing for her with that that big thing you squeeze, and color started to come back to her. And then I remember the uh, the paramedic being like, "Okay, she's getting her collar back," and I I took that as like a sign, like, and I remember like even as it was happening, I was just like, "Okay, like never again." Like it was like I was like, "If if we come out of this on the other end, never again," because that is like it, horror, just horror beyond anything I've ever known and anything I've known since. And as we're on the way to the ambulance, she crashes. And I mean, the ambulance is like five minutes down the road. So like just the, the, the rapid nature of the events happening. Um, so first he thought it must've been the leads, like the, the things that gave the vital information must've slipped off of her somehow, but no, like her entire system was crashing. Uh, she, like her heart stopped as we were pulling into the ambulance. They brought her into the resuscitation room, which was, obviously I wasn't allowed. Four nurses and two doctors at the Grand Bank Health Center. Um, they they didn't get they, I, w- I was pacing the halls and like it was I felt like a certain animosity towards me because I mean most of the time if you're in a hospital and someone's trying to save your life you're a victim of circumstance but I guess there was an, I guess there was sort of you know the stigma that like we put ourselves in this situation um, and no one would tell me anything because I wasn't our next to kin and it it was an hour before I found out exactly what happened and uh, I. I, I just, you know how unreasonable you are in these situations? And I remember a doctor being like, um, you know, we were unable to resuscitate her, and we, we tried very hard. Uh, we usually try for 20 minutes, uh, but we tried for an hour, and there was nothing that we could do. And I remember just, no, like, no. Like, go back in there and try again. Like, go back in there and try again. I just, I wasn't processing it. Mm-hmm. And I, honestly, I think it was about six months before I processed it, to be entirely honest. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it, it was and is, and, I mean... I can't imagine anything surpassing it in terms of the worst day of my life. And I honestly hope that no one has to go through that, especially for something so stupid, like so unnecessary and avoidable. She did not have to die. She was 23 years old. Everything that she could have been and everything that she could have done, it's because, because what? Because we, we didn't want to deal with life on life's terms. Let's just say it. In the days after um, Nicole's death, there was incredible. Like, I mean, that's a big deal for a town my size. Yeah. Someone dying at 23, especially the nature that they died. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was there a lot of rumors going around, small town and rumors. Uh, I mean, and, and some of them were awful. Some of them, some of them were were creative but awful. There were suggestions that I had done it on purpose. There were suggestions that it was you know simply a matter of us being idiots and just doing. But for the most part, people people believe that this was, you know, the beginning of the end for me as well because I didn't have much in the world at that point, and me and Nicole were on the same sinking ship, and we were we were 
you know, we, we were just bailing water <laughs> together every day, and, and we, it, it wasn't, you know, you know, it, it was, it, it's, it's not what you think of when you, when you think of, you know, romance, but I, I did genuinely love her, and I'm, I'm sure she genuinely loved me, and we were just broken, and, um, and so they expected me to, to die. They expected me to just go deeper and deeper and deeper and, and to have less concern and less care until I was the next person who lost their life. And I just thought that that would be an insult to her. When you die, you leave a hole in the world. And I got to see how that affected the people that she left behind. Like. I got to, to, to see her mother, I got to see her grandparents, I, I, I got to see, like, her, her mother still, like, I mean, of course, it's only a couple of years, and I mean, I don't, if it's a decade from now, I'm sure her mother will still be a wreck, and it was all for nothing, and I already know for a decade, I, I've, my mother was shell-shocked, you know, like, how can you not be, I was, your, your little boy um, veered in, in a wrong direction, and now he is in and out of prison, and he's sticking needles in his arm. Like, how does this happen? And every night my mother went to bed fearing what Nicole's mother faced, and I just couldn't do that to her. And I'm, I'm just glad, I'm glad that I, I would do anything to change what happened, but I'm glad that I reacted to it the way that I did. Interestingly enough, and I won't say this often because for the most part, um, like it, in terms of, of prison, at least in this province, um, there's not a mo there's not a lot of rehabilitation going on. It's more or less just storing you until you can get out and commit your next batch of crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that in my case, this was one time that being locked up more or less saved my life. Um, I got locked up for the most ridiculous reason, in my opinion. Um, I, I was prescribed. I was flirting with the idea of no longer having to put up with the pain, obviously. Um, and so at, for the first 60 days of my incarceration, the HMP is always full. Uh, so if you happen to get yourself in trouble in Marystown, even though the lockups out there are designed for 24 to 48 hour stays, I found myself there for 61 days. So 61 days I was in a lockup. There's no, like, it's it's a room. Uh, you get out every third day to shower. Aside from that, you're in a room with a, with usually one or two, sometimes three other people. Um, and it's a toilet, like a, a metal toilet with a sink in the back of it and a hole that they feed you through. And that was, that was my life for 60 one days I it was hard on the head but in a sense I was on camera the entire time I was trapped with my thoughts I had no choice but to digest it all and you know and but it was also tough because you know you can't you can't cry when you're in the lockup you you know you're you play your role you know and and so I, I was the tough criminal um, and so I just lost, you know, um, the woman I loved, and I couldn't cry about it, and that was pretty difficult. So as as, as cliche and, and, you know, funny as it sounds, I would cry in the shower every third day. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the whole uh, the whole detachment heard me, but, you know, it, it had to be done. But, uh, yeah, I, I had those 61 days to, to sit and, and to think, and, 
every Wednesday is visiting day, which is, which is good in a sense. I was glad I was there because of that, because otherwise my mother would have to travel three and a half hours to see me at the HMP. And it, I just, you know, like I, I could see her through, through the, you know, on the other side of the glass and just the concern in her eyes. And I realized that, like, that was nothing compared to what Nicole was going through, and it was nothing, or Nicole's mom, sorry, was going through, and it was nothing compared to what she would go through if I died. And I realized that I, I had to, I had to fix this situation because it's, it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable lifestyle. You either will die or end up in prison, and it, it becomes a cycle. Not, I mean, you only get to die once, unfortunately. But uh, in terms of in and out of prison, it's a cycle, and I just, it's an empty cycle. And then I, I wanted more from life. Oh my god, uh, it is it is my number one reason for staying sober, and it, to the point that it, it makes making good decisions incredibly easy. I, I've got no illusions about how uh, lucky I am in terms of my situation. Uh, I don't come from a family uh, where you know drugs are, or crime are prevalent. Um, I've had two very attentive parents, and they they did their absolute best uh, with me, and they did a good job. So you know, some, sometimes the apple just rolls away from the tree. Um, and well, I have two sisters that speak to to that because I have two amazing sisters who who are doing incredible. One's uh, working as a, a social worker in Saskatchewan, and the other one is just completed high school last year, and she's training at the Woodford Hair Salon. That could be not what it's called, but I know she's doing what she loves, and that's what's important. And they're they're both saints. Um, my relationship with them was almost non-existent by the time Nicole passed away. Uh, like it, it just it, it was all my doing. You know what I mean? They they wanted me to get better and they wanted to to be there for me. But there's only so many times that you can, you know, hope and pray and and believe in someone, and then only to have them like turn around and destroy your trust and and to to go right back to where they were. I mean, I, I don't think that they. I think it was to the point where they didn't believe that I loved them anymore. And I, and I don't blame them, because if you were to look at it objectively, how could you do the things that I was doing if you loved them? And and that's what breaks my heart. That's that's what I'll spend uh, the rest of my life or the rest of their lives trying trying to, to rectify, is that, you know, I I never stopped loving them, but I just, I guess, you know, it, it, it wasn't enough to, to keep me from what, from what I was doing. My mom is super soft-hearted, so... Uh, I took advantage of it, mm-hmm. absolutely, and I, I, I don't think I'm alone in, in saying that you, you will take advantage of, of the people that care the most about you, because sometimes if, if breaking a promise, or if making and breaking a promise is what stands between you and your fix, it's an easy decision, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm her only son, and I'm her firstborn, and I, I took advantage of that. I took advantage of the fact that a mother's love is, you know, it's immeasurable. And now, what keeps me sober is it's 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 just knowing that my family like being around me and knowing that my family aren't nervous anymore. And so now that we're to a point where I, um, in February I'll be two years sober, and I've. I've accomplished more in the last year and a half than I did in the decade while I was on drugs. Um, but I, I talked to my probation officer. I was like, I need a, I need a plan because I, I don't know how to be a human anymore. Like, and, and I, I was dead serious. I don't, I don't know how to day to day be an adult. And I, and I was like, 
I know where I want to be, but that's no good unless you have a plan to get there. And so she referred to me to the John Howard Society, which is an amazing, amazing organization. It's, it's all about helping. It's, it's all about doing what prison says they're trying to do, which is to rehabilitate people. Mm-hmm. Um, I met a, a gentleman who, who runs a Mary Brown's location, and he gave me a shot. And I know that I was glad for it, and I know at the end that he's glad for it too. Um, because throughout my entire program, I never miss a shift. I was never late, and not only that, but if he was ever in a bind or someone called in sick or whatever, I was the person. So it, it was really good because having someone give me that trust and that responsibility. Because I mean, I I I, I don't know how he thought that was a good idea, but I was I was counting the till at the end of the night. You know, wow. I, mean, I had hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. passing through my hand every day, and none of it went missing, mm-hmm. and none of it, you know, like it it, it was all a, a positive thing. And I honestly feel like the responsibility that he gave me motivated me to to work that extra bit and then of course the real draw is that at the end of it after six months you get a layoff you don't get fired you get a layoff which makes you eligible for EI and then you can get school paid for mm-hmm. and that was what I wanted my next step to be so I could get up to a three-year program paid for I'm not really interested in the trades uh, but I always had an interest in journalism mm-hmm. and when I found out that the program had been moved to St. John's I was like the stars are falling in line <laughs> Kicking once you're down In my town, it's like one main school. So, like, if one group of people are exposed to it, everyone is exposed to it. And I wasn't exposed to it until I came to St. John's. But when I went back, I just watched things get worse and worse. It's gotten to the point where if you don't know where to look, chances are the younger people know. You know what I mean? Because now you've got younger people raiding their their grandparents' medicine cabinets and stuff, and like, it's no longer something that's just out there and and, and no one's aware of it. Now, like, kids aren't accidentally taking medication; they're seeking out medication to take. And ever, you know, it's it's a very hot button topic, so everyone's aware of what to look for. And um, so, yeah, it's 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 bad. It's scary, especially because as I was the oldest child, um, I had none of, none of that experience when I was in school, but now I have a, a sister, uh, my youngest sister especially, um, I mean, her being in grade nine and knowing, you know, like, that people around her are on Percocets and, and, and Ritalin and stuff, um, I mean, she, she told me that there were kids in her class that were, like, you know, snorting Ritalin in the back corner of the room, and I'm sure that's not all they were snorting, too, and it, it just blew my mind because I, I, it wasn't like that when I, like, I, kids don't seem as, as, um, you know, sheltered, uh, especially now in Marystown. Like, there's no one in Marystown who isn't aware of the problem. This isn't some, like, under seedy underbelly of Marystown. Like, it's well known. It's to the point where um, I, I don't think that people have that romantic idea of where they came from anymore. I know that a lot of people would come back to their hometown to raise their kids because they wanted to raise their kids the way that they grew up because it was such an overall positive experience and they they would pass down tradition and and like, you know, like it was something that would bind us all together. But now when your experience of a place is primarily negative, um, and I, I guarantee you like there's there's no one who's uh, in the drug scene is, is dressing up as a mummer unless they're about to rob a pharmacy. <laughs> so right. it's it's not like something that gets 
passed down or, or is really concerned with. So now it's more of a negative thing. It's like, um, I don't want to raise my kids in the town I grew up in because now they're twice as likely to, to get involved with drugs. It's not the way it used to be. And I, I, I used to love my town. I really did. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to be from there in any sense. But I, I wouldn't raise a kid there. Absolutely not. Like, I've got big dreams, and uh, they're, they're more than just dreams now, because like I said, it's no good at having an end goal if you don't have a way to get there. Um, I decided to do journalism um, because I've always, I've always enjoyed writing, and I've always believed that everyone has a story to tell. Um, and whether that's a, like a, a person with a story to tell, or if there's like an, a, an event or, or thing like, like drug addiction or, or the opiate crisis uh, affecting like you need to make informed decisions and I just feel like you know this is the way to inform people and and I feel that journalism is a good way for me to be able to write um, and get paid for it and and you know like tell a story and eventually there are a lot of things that I, I want to do I want to to talk to people um, about addiction and I was you know hopefully before they become addicts like talk at schools mm. and stuff and just kind of put it in, in honest terms and I mean my story like I, I, I watched the person that I love die like if that doesn't resonate with someone they're mm. they're probably dead inside already <laughs> I'm in a position to actually make these things happen now mm. as opposed to just sit and wish mm. So that's Stephen's story. And I got to say, after he told us, when when he came in, we didn't expect that that's what we were getting. But for a couple of weeks afterwards, I couldn't think of anything else. Yeah, it's... And he just the way he tells it, right? Yeah. It's it's been years now, and he's clearly went over it so many times Mm -hmm. and trying to make sense of it. Yeah. I I texted with Stephen back and forth uh, a couple of days ago. And um, he's graduated from the Metadon program. Wow. He's finished. So that's ahead of schedule. A little bit, yeah. Because he said February in the interview. Yeah. So he is off Metadon. He was off Metadon in December. He said he's been now running for a month on his own steam. Wow. Yeah. He's still in college. I'm actually going to speak to his photojournalism class in Mm. a couple of weeks. And uh, doing really, really well. Good. So... Remind me again who uh, who we're going to hear from next. Yeah, next we are going to hear from Susan Boone and uh, Brian Rees from Bell Island. And maybe I'll let them introduce themselves. Here is Susan. I'm Susan Boone. I'm 43 years old. I live on Bell Island. I haven't lived here all my life. I was born a townie. Moved over here when I was 10 left when I was 22, came back again a few years later. I'm never gonna move again. I was homesick. I missed long grass. We lived in Cambridge and everything is manicured. So you can't walk, I'm, this is for real. I missed long grass that you can walk through and wave your fingers through and there was none of that in the city. That's why I came back. And that's why I'm never leaving anymore. There's no long grass anywhere else, but in rural. Isn't that the best reason to move back to rural 
Place. Yeah, I love it. It's got me thinking back uh, the same sort of way. Now, I, I grew up not too far from Cambridge, and I can say we did have long grass, but Belle Island is a kind of a thing of beauty in itself. I don't think I've ever seen a better sunset than on Belle Island. I know. And they have pretty good fish and chips, too. They do have pretty good fish and chips. So let me introduce you to Brian. Uh, Brian Reese, born on Belle Island, left when the mine closed. I uh, went to St. John's till I was 17 or 18 and then went walkabout. Traveled, did a lot of traveling. Had to get, a, get out of the big city. Too much, had to, had to come and relax. Find that long grass. So we've got two uh, sort of wandering souls. Obviously a uh, bit of storytelling on the go between both of them. Especially Brian, well actually both of them. And Brian, he's really a bit of a... Rascal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what did you talk to them about? Brian and Susan run this really interesting uh, community developed and led harm reduction program on Bell Island. And uh, maybe I'll let you hear Susan tell it how it all kind of started. Because it's very personal for mm. I don't think people really know the extent of addiction and opioid use and and things like that until it's in your face and I discovered my daughter was an addict and um, the first the first people I told were um, it was CYFS at the time now it's CSSD thinking that she has three children so thinking that you know I tell you what's going on here now because your child, youth, and family services, the children will be safe with me, and you're going to shoo Nicole off, and you're going to get her all the help she needs, and she'll come back in a few months, and she'll be all better. But that's not what happened. <laughs> that's not what happened at all. So I started looking around for people that could help us, and I couldn't find the services that we needed. I could find them in St. John's. We had some people come over from Eastern Health, two ladies come over from Eastern Health and had a little seminar. They had a big board up with all these services that Eastern Health offers and there was a lot of them. There was a lot of services. And when I looked at it, and I actually, I think Brian, you remember, because I didn't know you then, you were still standing in the, over by the door. <laughs> and I didn't know you, and I stood up and I'm like, we don't have this, we don't have this, we don't have this, we don't have this. The only thing we did have was a counselor who only came once a week for a few hours on a Wednesday, which was not enough. So um, once, I, once I figured out there was no services that were easily available, it was time to find some people that can find me some services or make some services. So that was it. So this is another one of those situations where we're seeing people in the community take things into their own hands. Yeah, and all because she lacked services. I asked her what kind of services she would like to have, and she had a whole list. Maybe I'll play that uh, clip, and she'll talk about the process of how it actually works, but then we'll move into the work they actually do. I didn't know really what I was looking for first. It was all kind of new, and I'm, I'm still, still today, like, I'm still trying to figure out what we need, what I need, everybody's different. Um, but counseling would have been good. An option to have something like methadone or suboxone. I mean, it's not for everybody, but at least that option. Um, you know, uh, well, even rehab, 
rehab is a lot of trouble to get into. It's not easy, you know, when my daughter came to me and she said, okay, you know what, I'm ready, I need help. So then there's two week rigmarole to get your duckies in a row before your application can be sent off. Then after you're approved, there's up to a 60 day wait before you can go to rehab. So by that time, you're looking at 60, 70 days since the day she said, I need help. Nothing, you know, it's not, it's not good enough, right? So that's how that happened. Uh, we did the whole rigmarole. <laughs> we went through the whole rigmarole and um, we, she started off at, um, between um, CSSD and the family doctor, got the paperwork done, which wasn't really adequate, but they kinda, they really needed a counselor, a counselor and your family doctor to do the things. But where there wasn't a counselor always available, that was difficult. So CSSD and the doctor uh, put their parts of the application together, sent it off. So then we sent her, or she went, I shouldn't say we sent her, she went to uh, the recovery center in St. John's. So we kind of timed it. Once we found out we had 60 days wait, we kind of timed it so that her seven day stay at recovery, we could just pick her up from there, drive straight to Corner Brook because we didn't, we wanted her far away from I mean, she can hitchhike a ride back to Belle Island if she wanted to from Harbour Grace. But from Cornerbrook, it's a little bit more difficult. So that's how we timed it. And even that didn't really, <clears throat> sorry, even that didn't really work out well. After three days in the recovery center, um, they said that she wasn't suffering any uh, opioid withdrawals and they released her. So when she got released, she came back to Belle Island, of course, and then she started to use again before the time it was to head on out to Corner Brook. So then she kind of had to start from scratch in a sense when she got to Corner Brook. And that was really hard for her to start again. She spent, did she make four days? Probably four days out there. There were some things that happened out there and she called and said, come get me. And then we had to go get her and she came back and that's kind of where we're still at except for the bit of stuff that we're doing now, the meetings that she's going to, that we've been working on, and um, the peer support stuff we've been working on, different things like that. So you can imagine facing that, mm. you'd want to take things in your own hands. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's fascinating because um, Susan said social media, and she has this love relationship with social media but social media was crucial because she uh, created a page mm -hmm. here Bell Island uh, on Facebook right. and she shared her daughter's story mm. with her daughter's permission mm -hmm. and that allowed others to step up right. so Brian and Susan are very careful to say they are not the ones who are doing all of this there's a really a community of people now on Bell Island who are helping to provide these services right. Right? so you know where they started needle exchange okay and that makes sense because at the time that when when they were doing their work we were taught we're talking we're not talking about you know helping recovering users we're talking about active users who need to be safe and there is there wasn't anything there wasn't a there wasn't a next step no, there but was there nothing. was a maintenance and there was a let's see what we can do to make sure that people aren't aren't harmed more than they need to be so here's Susan talking about how they started that needle exchange. That was the very first thing. That was actually the first thing because I, when I started looking, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know anything about 
drug addictions and IV drug use. I didn't, I knew nothing just that these people are sick, you know. And then when you find out your own daughter, it doesn't matter if it's an IV drug addiction or it's a tumor, you got to help. You got to do something. And then, so the first thing is harm reduction. So you got to make sure that they're safe and they're healthy for when the time comes that they're going to be clean. So we had a meeting at the hospital and Miss Walsh, Tree Walsh from ACNL came over from um, SWAP. And after the meeting, she looked at me and she said, uh, you need a SWAP satellite office. I'm like, that's what I need. I need a SWAP satellite office. So that's when we started on that. And, um, but in between there, uh, Brian's been going over and um, because we didn't have a space so Brian was going over picking up stuff bringing it back delivering it to the kids and then the kids will hand it out amongst themselves so like you might give so much stuff to one kid but that kid will make sure that the next kid gets some and, and stuff like that so that yeah that was the that was the first thing so it's worth mentioning there that when she refers to swap that is the Safe Works Access Program, which is the needle distribution and service that's offered by the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, Tree Walsh is uh, sort of the face of that organization and, and is a sort of vibrant activist in terms of health promotion and education for people who are using drugs. Yeah, and she was, um, Susan and Brian talk about how helpful those connections were. Because as Susan said, she didn't even know what it is that she was looking for, mm -hmm. right? And the program became hugely successful. Uh, in fact, numbers seemed almost unreal to me, but that's because I knew so little about it. It's quite um, interesting, too, because uh, the Swap Needle Exchange program certainly came from a very urban and a downtown urban perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you said that because Brian's experience was really instrumental in getting all this going because he worked in downtown Eastside in Vancouver. Mm. And uh, just like here, he kind of took matter in his own hands and started the very first, as he calls it, unsafe injection site <laughs> in, oh. in Canada, right? Right. Uh, and worked with some researchers um, who helped um, actually grow the support system that exists today in downtown Eastside. So when they started this needle exchange program, mm. uh, I, I don't know if they expected those numbers, but I was certainly um, surprised by the number of needles that they actually were managed passing through. That, that were passing through. So um, here's Susan talking about that a little bit. We only done the math one time, right? So we had, oh, what was it? 12,000 needles in three months. That was exchanged. So they, sometimes when you say that, people think that you pick them up off the road. No, those were the ones that were brought back, that we brought back to um, to a swap, satellite, uh, swap office in St. John's. Somebody at one of the meetings said, well, you know, that sounds like a lot, my goodness. And it is a lot, it, you know, five needles is a lot. Um, but uh, my daughter and her friend told me that they can go through 15 needles a day, up to 30 needles a day, you know. So it depends, and there's people who, who dispose of their needles different ways. There's people who reuse their needles, which is what we're trying to avoid. You know, there's people who share their needles, which we're also trying to avoid. So it's not really a good, it's not really a good statistic, but it's a starting point. You know, it's a, a place just to give you that number, you know, to see where we're at. I mean, like you said, it's 2,500 people here. It shouldn't be the way it is. 
right so that that number for me was really surprising and i mean if you think about 15 or 30 needles per user per day maybe it's not that surprising but still for a small community it's a small population yeah. yeah as i said brian was um was really instrumental in all of this in some way and he's um he has already been well known in the community. Not many people knew him. He's been around 14, year, 14 years, but living in the woods kind of thing mm. and uh, vigorously protecting his own property from clear cutting trails that damage the watershed and was always kind of a bit of a pain in the neck, as he would describe it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he came with this huge wealth of experience from Vancouver. Which would be such an, uh, a unique and, and unexpected experience when we're talking about a community of 2,500 people uh, located on a small island, a ferry ride away. Um, it's kind of, kind of unbelievable that he was there waiting. Yeah. I'm going to play two clips. Uh, the first one is about Susan meeting Brian. Uh, and then I'll tell you how Brian actually got involved. Then I met Brian. I think I met Brian 10 times before I actually met him because he's always hiding in the corner somewhere <laughs> at some meeting. Uh, and then I met Brian. And then he showed me some of the research and some of the information that he's gathered over the years up in um, Vancouver and here on the island. Brian has made friends, I suppose, with just about every user on the island, right? You know, good percentage. They 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 like them and they trust them and so it's a good good place to be there. I think it's really interesting and important that she talks about the issue of trust and uh, the idea that relationships build trust. Yeah, and it's interesting because Brian will actually get into it. He calls it the addiction one on one, but how how he discovered the problem in the first place and has been talking about it for some time, but nobody was kind of listening. And now, because he has built those relationships over the years, he was able to actually start something that was helping people. So um, here's Brian on describing how he got involved in the whole project. I had been complaining to the local governments about the kids up in the woods. And I knew that was one of the starting points. That was Addictions 101 for the kids every May 24th, Labor Day weekend. There'd be 100, 150 kids up in the woods uh, with every kind of booze and drugs you can imagine, burning up probably 100 tires while they're at it. And I found it to be an unhealthy situation. I complained and nobody cared. It was one of the rites of passage. So I haven't had a long weekend off in 14 years watching the kids in the woods and uh, nobody seemed to care about it. And I think that's where a lot of the addictions on this island in particular started, because they're all 13, 14, 15 years old. It's their first experience with partying over a long period of time, not just one night. And nobody seemed to see what I saw. (laughs) I didn't know anybody. I hid in the woods. I was here 14 years and nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew who I was. Then I, Gary had started his meetings, and Tanya, the school principal, had mentioned the Hill Bell Island page, and I'd been following it. And I finally introduced myself, I think, out in the parking lot at one, at one of Gary's first meetings at the Unity in the community. 
and then I've been to almost all his meetings. I, I try to be patient. <laughs> and I just got fed up after a while and said, boys, like, it's, it's very easy to get a needle exchange program on the go. It's very easy to get to know uh, the, the user community if, if you know how to approach them, which again is very simple, uh, money and food. That's what I did. I just uh, asked one of, uh, one of the other mothers let us use her house, and I just put the word out that I'd pay a $5 honorarium and feed you, and the kids showed up. The word was already out. Some of the kids knew what I had done in Vancouver and, and stuff like that, and that I was a familiar, and I had a, um, a bit of a reputation. Belle Island is, has a tendency, some of the folks tend to be a little tough and bullies and that, and, well, I, I deal with it quickly. <laughs> had issues with people clear-cutting the watershed and everything. Well, I own part of the watershed, and they had already cut out 12 acres of land, clear-cut of it, that I owned. So uh, between that and the kids camping, the word got around us. I was the arsehole from Lance Cove and proud of it, and to hold the title. <laughs> so th there you got a bit of taste of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't be a pushover when you're working in the Lower East Side either. No. No, absolutely not. So um, I find it really interesting. I mean, we talked about trust, but Brian tapped into the user community, mm. right? And he thinks that is the key to anything you do. Mm. Right? I think it's interesting that he said some of them knew what he had done in Vancouver. And that kind of makes me feel that, you know, maybe in a rural community, if you're a young person especially, there's a sense that despite, you know, what you're involved in, people around here don't know about stuff like that. They couldn't possibly understand. So it's interesting that an outsider who obviously had such a long background working with this stuff was easier for people to approach than, you know, maybe some of the people who they'd known their whole lives. Uh, like most addict communities, very close-knit. They have to uh, avoid the police, find their, find their supplies, find needles, drugs, whatever, everything they need. And it's a very close-knit community, and I knew from Vancouver that once you tap into the user community, most of it, I think you have a, as I say at Gary Gazine's meetings many times, intolerance is the biggest problem on Bell Island. As far as addictions go, it's power, politics, alcohol, then opioids. So you have a, almost a genetic predisposition, a multi-generational, the same as the kids camping in the woods. See the, parents thought it was was okay so they'd give them money they you know kids are good they're up in the woods great and it's sort of well we went through it we did it they'll be okay and that just built and then but back in the day they didn't have opioids right it was a bit of pot maybe some acid then they figure out mushrooms grow in the woods you know nothing too outlandish but then the coke hit back in the 70s I guess along with the acid in the 80s and then as it, as people sort of looked the other way and oh, the kids would be fine over the generations it just got worse and worse and more accepted in the community or ignored I should say not accepted just ignored and where it's come to the point now between uh, the availability the easy access and availability to the drugs nothing to do no work uh, kids got a very and I think it's a very high per capita uh, incidence of addictions here on, on Bell Island and various addictions most most the worst one being alcohol in my books because it's available legally 
So that's the other thing they talked about. Everything is available in Dawa. Mm-hmm. Some of it comes from the main island of Newfoundland, but a lot of it is prescription drugs. Right. Right. The other thing they talked about is that everybody's addicted. Mm. Not everybody on the island, but right across socioeconomic boundaries, right across um, age groups, mm. gender groups, everybody. There is somebody in every of those categories, right? It's interesting, the idea of ignoring is coming out here. And so we hear that some of the behaviors that probably led to some of these problems may have been ignored over decades. But then there's also the sense that the fact that this has all been happening on Bell Island has been ignored. Now, I can't say totally ignored. Certainly there have been authorities who have been doing things to try to make a difference. But I don't know that people living in... St. John's, which is really what? How, how far away is it? It's about a 20-minute ferry ride. It's very close. It's very close. It's, it's the short ferry ride and then a 15-minute uh, drive. 15 15-minute drive, if that. So the idea of ignoring, it, it applies beyond just the people living on the island, I think. And, and you know, probably, you know, given the topic of our, of our episode today, there's probably quite a bit of urban ignoring of what's going on in some of these rural places. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, I ask, uh, I ask about who are the users, right? But I also ask, okay, where are the drugs coming from? from? Who are the dealers? And uh, that's where the ignoring part plays into as well. So this is what Susan had to say. Everybody. Not, ev- not, you know, not everybody, but a, a good cross-section of the community. Uh, drug users just maintain their habits. Uh, People, like I said, that get their prescriptions, got a few extra pills. People that go to town and buy some from, you know, the bikers or whatever. Uh, it's a cross-section and, and elderly, everybody. A good cross-section, not everybody. A good cross-section of the population you know, are, are involved in it. And, and the issue is, the problem is, is that it's been ignored. Nobody, nobody wants to do anything. Nobody feels they can do anything about it. And then he goes back to talking about the addicts mm. as your most underutilized resource in trying to stem the use. Wow. And that's uh, really, you know, the idea of addicts as actors is probably not the way that a lot of us view drug addiction. Yeah. There's yeah. a certain passivity, passiveness to the way that we characterize people who are using drugs. Yeah. Um, I should also mention when uh, Brian mentions Gary, he refers to um, Gary Gazine, mm-hmm. the mayor of Wabana, which is the largest community on Bella. Right. Okay. So here's Brian talking about the users and the families. The most underutilized resource that there is is the user community and their families. Because they do, people think that, you know, they don't know anything about it, but through their experiences, they have sometimes more useful knowledge than the experts themselves who have degrees of separation not due to their wanting those degrees but because uh, the way things are structured the doctors only got so much time counselors aren't available mental health isn't available they try but there just isn't the so you have to utilize the resources that are available to you and they can be very successful because the community knows itself they know their own citizens and and if 
given a little help and a little f facilitating them helping themselves. I think empowering the mothers, I think, is one of the biggest things. The mama bears, the defender cubs, is, is probably the most important because they'll stop at nothing to help them, right? <coughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. And that's empowerment is what it is, Let them, letting people know that, yes, you can. You can be part of the solution. You can help your child. Even if it feels like you can't get the help, you got it in your own community and in your own friends and family that you can actually facilitate some, some de to some degree, some help. That's what I noticed in the first in the first few meetings, and and they were users and general community alike families and mm -hmm. and whatever. We danced around. What can we do for the, the people who are addicted? This is what we're going to do for you. You're going to go, and I done it. I done, when I was looking for services, I'm like, you're going to go here, and then you're going to go here, and then, but you don't. We haven't been asking. We haven't like, today. If I said to my daughter, "What do you need?" She'll say, "I need to be sedated for two weeks to get the worst of it over." She'll tell you exactly how she can get better. You know, and, but we haven't been doing that. I don't think any. I don't think really anybody's been doing that. We've just been saying, you know, I'm, this service is available here, and this service is available here. So we're going to take these services and push you in them, and then you're going to be better. And it's not working. It's not working. So we got to do our. Yeah, all in, everybody's an individual needs different approach, and all you got to do is listen to what they need, and just try your best, because it may be very simple needs, just something to do, something to occupy their time. That's why we used to give them a bit of work. They'll, you you offer work same as Vancouver, same thing here. If you can offer them uh, two, three, four hours of work every day, they'll be all over it. Doesn't matter what it is. One of the young fellows was emptying out a septic tank with a with a bucket for ten dollars an hour. Right? That's a real interesting approach, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a real slam to that stereotype of people using drugs and sort of not having any interest in anything else. And the whole family connection, and this is a really sad story, and I kind of want to warn listeners a little bit because we all ended up a little teary-eyed as Susan was telling us the mm. story, but um, they, um, the first site that they were hoping to get for needle exchange, it felt true, it didn't happen mm. again. And uh, they have created a mobile needle exchange mm. and Susan tells this story that is so rooted in the community and in a tragedy that happened in the community but it was entirely community driven mm. so here's Susan so we started off when we had this first meeting we had this this first meeting you were you weren't at that one though were you this one was Carol Ann uh, Mason from she's the site manager at a hospital here on Bell Island um, it was Sergeant Peddle from the RCMP was there, Mayor Gary Gazan was there, I was there, and Tree Wells from ACNL from SWAP was there. And we had this first meeting. Um, and so I asked the hospital if they had space. And someone at that meeting said, you know, um, no, we don't really have the space and there's a criminal element that we have to think about. And I'm like, Okay, sick people with addictions, you know, and you're worrying about a criminal element. I just, anyway, so we moved on from there. I'm like, I'm not going to fight with you. And then um, we asked some other places, and nobody wanted to touch us with a 10-foot pole. 
Finally, the mayor puts me on to Tourism Belle Isle, and Tourism Belle Isle has the red building down there that they're renovating. So I speak to the chair of Tourism Belle Isle, and then uh, went down, and we had a little, you know, go about, a little tour of the building, and he said, there's this room here, and this room up here, and this room here, and, you know, when it's all renovated, he said, you know, you can pretty much have your pick of which one, and there's another long meeting space here, because we were looking for, we were trying to do... Um, and I don't even think I met Brian at the time. It was, we were trying to do a place where we could do a needle exchange. So you'll come in for your, you know, uh, bowl of soup or sandwich. You'll get your needles. And then there'll be resources around you where you're to. There'll be friends where you can talk to, you know, stuff like that. So And you can talk amongst each other and see what works. Anyway, so we had this plan. And so he said, okay, here it is. So time went by and we were trying to get all of our duckies in a row, trying to bring the user community into, you know, in, put it into place and have parents support and peer Naloxone support and all that stuff. Naloxone training, thank you, Naloxone training and all that stuff. So we got all that finally done. Getting ready, all excited. We're gonna move into the red building. The red building was no longer available. So this is probably the part where I'm gonna cry now. Um, so what happened? I got the news that we weren't going to get space in the Red Building. And, of course, my heart was broken because now all these kids who've been doing good, um, you know, they were they were actually weaning themselves off of opioids. Two two kids have weaned themselves off. Now, they might have been using other drugs. Nicole, yeah, Nicole was one of them. They were using other drugs, but not drugs that were as difficult to be, you know, to get off of. And then with that news, it's like... The bottom fell out and then like yeah well they don't care we don't care right and it kind of went to crap again so that's still not the part where i'm gonna cry i'm gonna cry about talks about tina and david so at this very the very same time we got the news that we didn't have the red building uh, another mom that was going to the meetings gives me a call and she said you know she said i just got a call from my sister and i'm like yeah she said uh, you know that she lost her son to fentanyl overdose last week and I'm like yeah she said um, she said she needs a space she's gonna make a space mm. so David Kavanagh died her son he was 24 24 years old same age as my daughter died suddenly of, of a fentanyl overdose and Tina wanted to do something in his memory to help and she said she was gonna help anyway she said you need a space I'm gonna make you a space so she bought the RV that's out here in the garden, and she donated it. And the part that upsets me, that makes me want to cry, is how do you thank somebody for something like that? To me, it's like um, organ donation. Like her son had to die. And right now, as it stands, only because she lost her son do we have a space to do needle exchange. Mm -hmm. And because he died... My daughter's going to have a chance, and her friends are going to have a chance, and the people down the road are going to have a chance because of that, not because of any help from the community leaders, not because of any help from the government, but because a lady lost her son and seen a need, you know, is like is fantastic and is amazing and is wonderful and is sad. Right. So you know, again, completely community-led. Mm initiative mm -hmm. maybe we can end with a couple of clips i asked susan what's the next thing to do yeah. and i also asked her 
and they had such fantastic ideas. Uh, and I also asked her about the advice for the rural communities that are struggling with the same issues and kind of looking for their own solutions. Mm -hmm. Moms rule the world. <laughs> but I think uh, we are, and um, this uh, actual physical space, like a building, <laughs> would have been fantastic to have all moms come in so we can cook up a cup of tea and have a chat. And sometimes we could talk about our kids and say, you know how much of an asshole my kid was this week? He stole 50 bucks. You think that's bad. My kid stole 50 bucks and did this, right? So, you know, we could kind of <laughs> talk about that stuff. Or we could just, you know, shoot the breeze, relax, do a bit of yoga, something. And, um, and, and we're going to get to it. We've been all kind of working together. All the moms been working together on a couple of different things. And we've been talking and it's something I found and we've all found um, it's nice every now and then there'll be a crisis in one of our families. <laughs> in one of our families, one of our kids are missing and it's, I'm talking about a commonplace because it really is commonplace now. It's not something that everybody understands or goes through, but like, oh yeah, so I haven't seen my kid in a week. Have you seen your kid in a week? Oh yes. And uh, so there'll be a crisis and then I can pick up the phone and comfortably call any of these moms now. And besides that, which I found, you know, I'll be uh, forever grateful, though I, I curse social media for many, many years, but I'll forever be grateful to it. Uh, through the Heal Bell Island page, um, I found some other moms. They've contacted me um, because they know the story, because I'm talking about it now. Uh, they've contacted me either through, say, uh, Messenger on Facebook. They pulled me aside in the grocery store you know, told me about their aunt or their sister or their kid. And um, we kind of got a little, though it's not as open as some, like, you know, the, the other moms, we, we've kind of got like a little support network, private hide away kind of thing where they can call me or I can call them. So we're, uh, but we're gonna organize. <laughs> we're gonna organize soon. And then we're gonna fix everything. <laughs> Power to mama bears. Yep. And there is now really a network mm -hmm. on the island. Mm -hmm. And that's got to go a long ways for attacking stigma. People now can say, well, this is something that happened to me too, or that's happened in my family too, and they don't have to feel like no one else will have any idea what they're talking about, which is a big part of it for a family. Every positive step that we've seen in terms of our interviews, and, and some of them really amazing progress that some of these people have made. Community is at the center of all of it. Yeah. So Susan talked a lot about, when I asked her what the next thing she would like to do, um, one of the things she would like to do, they would like some space for what they called sober living, living and uh, mm. sort of post-rehab space mm -hmm. for people to, to feel safe in. Mm. So you get out of rehab and you come back, and now you have to go back into the same community and I don't mean physical community either, but, you know, the social community. You're going right back into that social community. And on a place like Bell Island, where you have one counselor once a week, sometimes if the boat's running, that support is not there. And you're going to run back into your friends. And, you know, we all know what happens. So a place where you can come, hang out for a while, get a bit of rest uh, with people who are like you, probably just got out of, out of rehab or recovery and that kind of thing. I think Brian could talk more about that. I don't know a whole lot about it. I'm just, I'm just a learner. I'm just learning all this stuff as I go. He's the veteran. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've been really liking the idea, and I think, and Brian is too, about, um, uh, you know, um, farming and growing produce, growing vegetables, berries. Uh, I think we talked about crafts, you know, up yeah. in the woods, well, making wreaths and stuff. Too. Building Build. their own cabins, get a little sawmill on the go. We got the woods, teach them how to use the tools, how to build another learning experience for them that they may find, some some of them may find interesting, because you have to offer the full gamut of whatever you can, because again, it's all individual, different people have different interests, and if you can find that one interest and mentor them and help facilitate them uh, following that, that path, it really helps, cuts down on the recidivism if they can find something that interests them. So one of the things that I didn't mention about Susan, but I met Susan through a very different set of circumstances. She's very active in food security group in Bell mm. Island and um, is helping people grow some of their own food right. and kind of revive and develop some of the agricultural heritage that used to exist on the island. Of course. So I have only one more clip from her. Uh, I asked her what she would do differently and she said she would never go for help to official channels. It takes too long. Uh, it's too complicated and it doesn't tap into the people who actually know what's going on. So I ask her, okay, if that's what you would do differently, what would your advice be to the communities that, you know, deal with similar problems that Bell Island is dealing with? And here's what she said. My advice uh, would be to, see, rural communities. <laughs> Let's go here. We're all a bunch of lawyers. Okay, is it, and it's my own opinion. Okay, so we're all everybody's best friend. Oh, come welcome to our loving community where it's true. <laughs> everybody's laughing at me here now. It's true. We're, we're everybody thinks that everybody is so, um, you know, hospitable and we love each other and we help each other all the time. That's not really that, that true. There's a lot of over the fence whispering and all of that kind of stuff. Um, other communities, I, if I was to give some advice to other communities, I'd say start with the mamas. Start with the mamas. Um, and moms are more apt to talk about stuff. They're more apt to share, I think, than even the users or the dads or the friends. Women talk. And uh, start with the mamas. Never mind what other people are saying. Don't look for help, outside help. No, that's not right either. Because it's not it's not fair. Because some people get help. See, you can't be interviewing me. Oh, I don't. For other communities, I would. I'd say, I'd say, help yourselves. Don't rely on on the government. Don't rely on social services. Don't rely on anything else. Take care of your own. Take care of your own first. I don't know. Ask Brian. <laughs> Brian. Well, it's the same thing. You'll find that that you got to tap into the community that already exists instead of trying to make something new or reinvent the wheel. It's already there. Tap into it. Tap into the mothers, the families, the user community especially. Everybody knows. And if, if you can get the trust, then you'll have no problems. And it so, all comes back to trust. It all comes back to trust. And working with the community. Yeah. And pulling together as yeah. a community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, this was a heavy episode. Yeah, it was. And... So we shared some stories uh, that were really personal from people who have experienced this stuff firsthand. And uh, there was 
a lot of really difficult content, but we heard hope in both of the stories. And so for episode number two on the opioid crisis, we are going to speak with a number of different people who have worked incredibly hard and in every single case, very collaboratively as well to make a difference in their own communities. And they're doing it in really different ways. But like we've been saying, there are these overlying similarities and community, community, community uh, seems to be sort of the the major connecting factor. So we're really excited to share those stories with you next time. Yes. So you listen to another episode of Rural Roots. And as I said, this was part one of our two-part episode around the opioid crisis in rural Canada. And actually, uh, in our next episode, we're going to be heading to Ohio as well. So in this episode, we heard from Stephen Miller from Grand Bank and Susan Boone and Brian Reese from Bell Island. In the next episode, we are going to feature voices of people in working in the justice system, in farm organizations, in health system. We'll talk to some researchers and they're all going to try to help us understand the causes and potential solutions to this issue. As always, Rural Roots is produced at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And we record at the CHMR campus radio station. We produce this show in partnership with the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. The show is funded through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. You can listen to us anytime on our website at ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. And we are also available through your favorite podcasting app and on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you would like your station to carry the show, get in touch with us and we'll make sure that we get in touch with your community radio station and help them figure out how to do that. So my name is Rebecca Cajal. And I'm Boyan First. See you next time. See you next time.